Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by returning guest to the podcast, Sarah Anderson, and new guest, Darren Kaiser. And in this conversation, I'm going to be talking with them about uh, some of the research that they that they've done recently as it pertains to deconstruction and understanding that and understanding um, faith and re and rebuilding faith as well of of just you know part of the part of this project that they that they undertook recently. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, if you've been listening to the Learner's Corner. You know that what we want to do here is create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to engage in the type of conversations to where we don't necessarily need to agree completely on everything, but we can be respectful and we can continue to learn from one another as well. And that's what we want to do. And especially in conversations around uh, like the ones that we're going to have today of uh, belief and faith and deconstruction and rebuilding your faith, that that can be pretty tough as a uh, it, it could be pretty tough to, to have conversations around that as, um, you know, as we're going to talk about more in my conversation with Sarah and Darren, but we want to be the type of place. I want to be the type of person to where you can engage in those type of, types of conversations and you can learn and grow uh, regardless of whether or not we disagree, because there's just some conversations that we need to have regardless of whether or not we disagree, regardless of whether or not we end at the same outcome or not. And so one of the things that I'm trying to do is is do that, is to create that safe place. And if you find yourself on this uh, on this journey of lifelong learning, please subscribe uh, to my Substack to where I have bunches of recommendations for different things that I've learned from and some of the best things that I'm learning from is wall. And all you gotta do is go to my Substack in the show notes and subscribe right there. Now, as I mentioned earlier today, I'm talking with Sarah Anderson and Darren Kaiser. So let me tell you a little bit about them and then we will jump into our conversation. Uh, And if you want to see any of the previous episodes that Sarah's been on, you know, you can check out the show notes for those as well. Sarah Anderson is a native of the greater Washington, D.C. area and a current resident of the Bible Belt. And she has spent her entire life learning to live in the tension between politics and... She's been learning to live in the tension both politics and religion create and striving to learn how to best navigate the complicated issues and emotional conversations around weightier topics she's a writer and speaker and until recently uh worked for orange as well for over 15 years and currently she lives in roswell georgia with her husband and their two boys now let me tell you a little bit about darren Darren Kaiser is a volunteerism, family ministry, and leadership expert. He earned a doctorate in those areas from Nova Southeastern University and has done comprehensive research surrounding volunteer satisfaction, organizational leadership, and change management. He is the co-author of The Volunteer Project, Stop Recruiting, Start Retaining, and as the Director of Partnerships and Academic Initiatives at Orange, Darren's primary focus is on forming new partnerships and helping the leaders of unique ministry strategies win. 
Prior to his current role, Darren spent 10 years as an executive family ministries pastor of a growing multi-site church in Pennsylvania. And in his downtime, he enjoys building stuff and participating in in endurance sports. And he and his wife, Becky, have two grown children. And they are currently enjoying their empty nest years on George's Lake Lanier, where their home is always open to a gaggle of superb friends and mediocre pets. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with the both of them about deconstruction and rebuilding our faith and finding faith again. Sarah and Darren, it is so good to have you both on the podcast. Sarah, it's good to have you back. And Darren, it's good to have you for the first time. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. And, you know, um, we're going to talk a lot about uh, this deconstruction project that you both had been working on some of the research that you were doing. But I would love to just start out with if you can uh, both remember when, when did you first learn about deconstruction or when did... When did deconstruction even even start for you in your faith journey? And you know, Sarah, maybe we could get started with you, and then Darren, you can chime in with uh, with your part of the story too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I probably first heard the word several years ago, but I, if I were now understanding what it means, which I would say deconstruction is just a reevaluation of kind of these constructs that you built your life around or the narrative that you built your life around. Um, I would say probably my first deconstruction experience happened in middle school. And I remember reading um, a Brennan Manning book, um, the Rack Muffin Gospel, and just being um, totally surprised in the best way possible to read about a God that didn't just love you, but actually liked you. Mm -hmm. And I think I just grown up with this idea of a God that kind of tolerated you and put up with you. And yeah, he sent Jesus, but if he, he didn't really want to do that, he just kind of had to do it. And so just to read this idea, it just reframed everything for me. And so in that way, I feel like it's, it's been a good thing for me to see that I could start to change my mind about what God was like starting at that young of an age and that it made it less scary when later on, I felt like there were bigger things to kind of reevaluate. Mm-hmm. So that'd be my experience. Yeah. How about for you, Yeah, Darren? I think uh, I, I when the word came into my kind of like, a, you know, mental models, I'm not sure. I don't, re- I don't kind of remember. I th- would probably say it's probably been about probably two years ago where I think I'm like, this is coming up a lot or the phrase, or I'm seeing it, I'm reading about it and began to try to understand what people meant by it. And so then I began to kind of go on a little bit of a hunt of what is this? And it was being talked about in number of different ways. And I think that was the key thing for me. I don't do well with bad definitions or fuzzy definitions. (laughs) And so then I tend to go on a hunt. And so I was trying to figure out what, what do people mean by this? What are the edges of it? What's the, you know, what, what is it? And so I think that was for me trying to like acknowledge it as in a sense of understanding it. Um, it was probably a couple, couple of years ago and same story when, once you kind of get into it, you start looking back and go, Oh, wow. Okay. I think I've, I, I didn't have that label. I didn't have that uh, vocabulary. I wouldn't have put myself with that hashtag or anything. 
but yeah, there was, there was questions. There was pieces that started, uh, that started a long time ago. Yeah. I think that both of us, Darren, when we started like digging into this, I think we both were surprised by the spectrum of responses people had to that word. And I think that kind of was what ignited as wanting to find out more because it felt like there were just very different ways people were interpreting that. And so you would use this, you'd hear this word being used and you'd be like, well, I don't even know what this means anymore because it's being used in completely different contexts, meaning different things. So I think that kind of triggered our wanting to figure out more about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you both just elaborate a little bit more on like what, whenever you were digging into this or you're hearing people talk about this, what were some of the things that's like, okay, people are saying this is deconstruction, but there's conflicting definitions and all of that. Can you touch on just a little bit more about what you were hearing people say deconstruction was or how they were interpreting it? Mm-hmm. Um, Darren, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you would, it depended on where, who the audience was. And I think that was the jarring piece of it. On one side, it would be uh, held up with honor and praise and people would be like giving it thumbs up. Oh, that's so exciting that you're doing this thing that w- was being labeled as deconstruction. On the other hand, we'd be at a conference or in a meeting and it would be the thing that we must stop is deconstruction and so you had some who saw it as the thing that was um killing the future faith of a generation um what's that yeah boogeyman (laughs) yeah it was that type Mm -hmm. of thing on the other side it was seen as this is to be honored because people are taking the time to really understand and going back to more original sources or older um uh, truth or doctrine or dogma and looking at it through that lens. Um, so I think those were kind of like the two extremes we saw. And there's just like the, the memes are amazing on both sides of that. If you go to the two polar opposites mm-hmm. of why people are are doing this and the, the, the hate that gets lobbed both directions. Mm-hmm. I also found that there is a dismissiveness from a lot of um, kind of church leaders or authority figures that were kind of like, oh, people are just doing this so they can sin. It's the sexy thing to do right now. It's, you know, it's just a, it's an excuse to live the way that they want. Mm-hmm. So there, it wasn't taken seriously on one end, but then it was also taken way too seriously. Like we got to stop this at all costs. So I think part of it was realizing some people were using the word deconstruction and really meaning deconversion. They were at, people were literally leaving faith over it. And that was one thing that people were, were describing. And on the other hand, we were saying this is a normal stage of faith development for teenagers that they're think, beginning to think critically. So we've got to figure out what, when you say that word, what do you mean? Do you mean a teenager is just asking questions about a faith that was handed to them? Or do we mean people are throwing out the whole thing because of an experience they had or because of a realization or whatever it is and, and kind of parsing down the, the definition a little bit more. And I th- yeah. Okay. So yeah, well, I was saying that was what made it so, uh, I guess, intriguing and, and motivating just begin to look into it is those two opposites. And specifically, then, you know, you start bumping into Fowler's stages of faith, and then you start going down that path and even stepping outside of uh, seminary understanding, you just get into the social sciences and all of the research that has been done about just how people convert into a body of knowledge and then deconvert 
out of a body of knowledge? And then how does that get applied to, you know, religion? And so the what became very clear was that, I mean, my Bible college and tiny bit of seminary and a bunch of years as a practitioner in ministry, ordained minister, I had no clue at the the depth of research that was going into these things. And we're just kind of like pulling pieces out of the air of whether this is something good or bad. And it's not even grounded in research that started 15, 20, 50 years ago and understanding it from, from some of those uh, models of academics. Okay. I already, I already know this is going to be so much fun because you both have said like four <laughs> or five things to where I'm like, okay, if we need to follow up on that. Um, so um, I, I want to go back to, you know, you mentioned um, that there were, uh, I think, two sides, and maybe maybe there's more than that. Is it, is it as simple as, like, conservative and liberal, or did it break down more than that in terms of, you know, if you were more uh, liberal with your faith, then maybe you were more accepting of deconstruction, and if you were more conservative, maybe it seemed like a scary thing? Because that's that's where my mind would tend to go, and I just want to, I want to see if it played out differently than that. Yeah, I, I think on a surface level it did, but then what we ended up finding was it it was treated the posturing we found ended up mattering a lot more than the actual position mm-hmm. of deconstruction, right? So it felt like um, what was unappealing about deconstruction on a conservative side of the spectrum was also unappealing on a liberal side of the of the spectrum because there was like a, almost an antagonism toward either side. Does that make sense? That so does. yep. Well, we, when we dug a little bit deeper, we were like, well, I don't know that the goal is to not deconstruct yeah. ever, or that the goal is to abandon everything and go in this direction, because both of those are really landing in a fundamentalist posturing of like, I figured this out. This is where I've landed and you need to land where I am yeah. basically. And so it, it kind of, it, it showed up that way on the surface, but the more we dug down, the more we realized, oh, the, the way someone holds their position matters a lot more than the position that they're holding. Does that make sense? That does make yeah. sense. Yep. So no matter, no matter whether you're conservative or liberal, you can, you can show up as fundamentalist. Yeah. And that was a, that was a huge, huge piece of being able to understand that that is an ideology of how I approach life, how I think about things. Mm -hmm. And it can be in either area. And I think the other piece that's broader than conservative or liberal, liberal or progressive is I think how it is perceived also comes down to the power structure um, and the Mm -hmm. in-group and the out-group. So if, somebody is has deconstructed and now they're attending my world or in my sphere well obviously i tend to celebrate that because they move towards my in-group but if they're processing thinking considering deconstructing whatever word you want to use maturing whatever word you want to use leads them out of my group to another group i have a much harder time seeing that as a positive thing because then it reflects on maybe I'm wrong or or something. So so the power structure uh, dynamic, I think, is a huge piece of how people perceive it. If my youth group is smaller because of this thing called deconstruction, then it's got to be bad. But if my church is growing or I'm selling resources to people who are deconstructing, then it must be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
one of the things Darren found, um, he articulated so well in this whole process was what one church would consider a deconstruction, another church might consider a conversion. So you could leave like one church, you know, one Baptist church and end up going to a Methodist church and the Methodists are like, we got one. And the Baptists are like, we lost one. So it's like how... How we even understand that, you know, under in the same team could understand yep. deconstruction completely differently. Mm-hmm. So talk to me more about like the like good posture, bad posture for if it's not so much about the the position or where we find ourselves in our belief, but maybe more about like how we hold our beliefs. Talk to me about like um, good examples, bad examples that you've seen just through your research for it. Darren, maybe you could get us started, and then Sarah, you can you can give your thoughts. Yeah, she'll too. clean this up a whole bunch. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's the, the this mindset. All right, it comes through the mindset of posture would be I have it right. I I have the truth. I know the edges of the truth. This is the truth. It has been the truth. Anything that I'm questioning is a question of my faith more than it is a question of the peace. So I need to double down on my faith. I need to be more um, dogmatic or I need to work harder at it. Um, your questioning is not a good question. You're challenging something that is static and has been held true by many times. And so it just kind of that that posture of certainty, I think the certainty is the other word that comes into this all the time, is if I have a posture of certainty that it is Everything is extremely knowable if I have good intentions. And if I have a pure heart, then it should not be hard to understand this. And if I'm asking God to help me understand it, then with pure intentions, I understand it. And what I understand must be true. And I that is the, the source of it. As opposed to, I guess, embracing uncertainty and saying, man, it's it's it could be this and it could be that. My current understanding as where I'm at in my journey right now has me best understand it in this manner. Um, my posture is that of uh, growing and open and willing to change and not assuming that I know it all. So it's just there's just a very different uh, point of view there um, and, and just really how you approach um, I guess the words that we use, such as doctrine and truth and, and some of those pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say um, we tried to come up with just kind of opposite words to kind of reflect what this would look like. And, and one of the things was moving from the idea of being an expert to a learner. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think it, it really is holding on to this idea of intellectual humility and it's saying, or humility in, in any form or fashion, not just intellectual, but just saying, I don't, I haven't cornered the market on truth. I haven't cornered the market. I'm like, my experience is, is my experience and it's valid, but there's a whole bunch of other people who've had other experiences. I need to take that into account. And I think the, the fundamentalist posture, be it conservative or progressive, um, is just doubling down on their narrative and their way of understanding the world, right? Like we can say, you know, probably jerks that are Christians and jerks that, you know, the new atheists, right? That like, there are people who are so convinced that their way, they're evangelists to atheism, they're evangelists for, you know, Christianity, but not in the way that's compelling. So their posturing is, I have this figured out. If you don't, it's because you don't know enough and I'm going to explain it Mm -hmm. to you. Whereas the posture of learning is saying, what do you have to teach me? I'm, I'm not trying to teach you anything, but I want to learn from your experience and, and kind of go from there. And knowing that that our faith is this kind of 
it's more of an organism than it is this inanimate object, right? So it's something that's growing, it's changing and allowing other people and other ways of understanding the world and new ways of understanding the world to influence the way that we hold our faith. Um, and not just being so, so tied down to it, but just having that kind of learner perspective. Mm-hmm. Were there any interesting, like, I don't know if case studies is the right word or just examples that either of you saw of people like holding that posture? Well, either, um, you know, modern examples or even just examples throughout history and stuff that you can think of. Sari, can you share the example, the, the story of your longtime mentor friend who would on a phone call would then pray for you, pray for you because the concern that you are losing your way. Yeah, that probably might be more of a bad example, <laughs> but or an example. I, I think, um, I think, yeah, a personal, more of a personal example is we, I think we both found that there were, when people are responding to the word deconstruction and fear, then it's not a learning posture, right? It's a, I'm afraid because you're no longer holding this, your faith the way that I hold it. So therefore it can't be right. You must have wandered away. And I don't think it's necessarily coming from the perspective of, or from like a prideful or arrogant or perspective. I think it's just, this is what we've always been known. I think this is what we've been taught, especially the modern mindset is post enlightenment is you can have it figured out. Like you can intellectually have this figured out. There is a stack of beliefs intellectually that you hold on to. And if you vary or, you know, move away from that, that's because you're wandering from the faith. It's not because you're thinking critically. So I think, you know, this is the way that we've kind of done church is a, in a really modern mindset, enlightenment informed way. And deconstruction, I know the word postmodern is kind of scary, but it is more of a postmodern way of saying, I'm not, I'm not convinced that this stack of things that you handed to me are as non-negotiable as you told me they were, that there might be more to it. And um, if you're responding out of fear, to me, that tells me more about the beliefs you're holding on to than the beliefs that I'm thinking critically about. That was another thing we kind of landed on, Darren, I would say is that um, the, the reaction to deconstruction said more about the person doing the reacting than the person experiencing it. And that there is something there about what kind of theology are we passing down where, where fear is the first response to a word like deconstruction and not curiosity or not loving the person in the midst of it. So um, I think we we found a lot of people kind of responding out of that, that, that fear place, concern, um, like we should be praying for you and, and um, tears. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like I'm just worried about you. I mean, the number of times where I feel like I had to say oh. to somebody, you I'm okay. Like you don't have to be afraid for me. I'm yeah. like, pray for me. Sure, that's yeah. great. But like I'm like, don't lose sleep over over me yeah. on this. Like I feel like I'm in a better spot than I've ever been, just even though it might not match yeah. yours. And I think a personal well, I, I, oh sorry, I, uh I'll give ahead. you a, uh, like a personal example is Let's yeah. go to, you know, when I was a family ministry pastor and like, okay, how do we build the best environments to help kids have a future? And so you, you lock in on something you're like, no, we want to make sure that they are involved in their learning and it's interactive and all these things. So you build environments like that. And if somebody brought up the word, I mean, take, go back five, 10 years, somebody said the word catechism, I would hiss at them, you know, or something like that. That's not the, that has no place in this. It needs to be something interactive and dialogue. They need to be, it needs to be real and all of that. And then 
you get to a point where you begin to rethink some things like, I'm not sure we're getting all that we thought out of that approach all the time. And so then the danger is, and these postures is that I throw that away and then flip to the other side and only, you know, look at catechism or responsive readings or something. And I think for myself, and I have a I bent that way. And so I have to work really hard at that is to get into this place where, wow, there is some great value in this approach, but I've certainly missed some great values and other approaches because I wrote those off and I never mm -hmm. investigated those and they didn't sit right with my initial observation. So I never did understand that I never actually sat down and talked with anybody and say, help me understand how that was beneficial to you. I don't see it from the outside, mm -hmm. but of course I've never lived it either. Talk to me. So personally for me, mm -hmm. just like in some programming things, um, because I'm like, oh yeah, burn the ships, man. Let's go. Let's go this new. It's there's, there's reason and data and stuff that says it's the better way to go. Let's go. Um, and that's that fundamentalist yeah. mentality as opposed to, Hey, wow, there is some, let's add that to our body of knowledge and let's consider this well and let's think it through and let's uh, embrace Wait. a number of approaches. Mm -hmm. Caleb, you mentioned, you know, history, examples from history. I mean, I think just on a very broad level, yeah. like the Reformation was a form yeah. of deconstruction, right? Yeah. I mean, it was taking what the Catholic Church had been doing and being like, is this the only way? Is there another way to look at this? That ultimately ended up becoming its own form of dogmatic practicing of faith, which I think it's going to always be the, the trend and the bent is going to want to really laying concrete what we're saying and what we're thinking. But I think every major movement, you know, this schism between the Eastern and Western church, all of these started with questions of, is this the only way to be doing this? Or is there something different? Mm -hmm. And, and allowing those questions to inform our experiences and the way that we practice our faith. So I think we're really short-sighted when we hear that word and think this is a 21st century problem. This is a problem yeah. of culture. This is a problem of secularism, whatever it is. And saying, um, we, we need to stop this immediately because you don't have to go very far back in history to be like, no, this actually has happened before and it's caused a lot of really great change. Mm -hmm. So let's not be afraid of where it could lead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, bo both of you talked about it. It made me think of um, two different dynamics of one that deconstruction is is in many cases just living out our faith. Like what you were saying, Sarah, it's like, um, you know, someone might say, you know, I'm I'm afraid of you for your faith. And I know that I've had the same mindset of just like, well, I actually feel like I'm living out my faith by asking these questions. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. and, and the other thing that came to mind, and I would I would love for both of you to elaborate on this, and Sarah, we can start with you, is um is love in the yeah. process of deconstruction, which I feel like is not talked about at all in this. Mm -hmm. But, and I guess that goes back to the posture too, for, for both the person who is going through deconstruction and the person who is deconstruct, um, who is here in the deconstruction process. Would you mind just talking a little bit about the love dynamic in this? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, we speculated we could be wrong about this, but I think we speculate that one of the reasons that fear tended to be such a big reaction is because so much of our theology is based on fear. Mm -hmm. When we're teaching primarily about um, Christianity being avoidance of hell, avoidance of bad behaviors, um, 
for fear of what God might do or what might happen, then it makes sense that fear is the reaction. But if we had, if we were teaching more out of a theology of love, then I think it's going to make more sense to love the people who are asking these questions. Mm-hmm. Um, love is going to lean into the curiosity. It's going to know that where you're encountering somebody on their current journey, whether they call it deconstruction or not, whatever that is, you're not encountering them at the finish line. You're encountering wherever they happen to be. And your job might not be to see them to whatever finish line that is, but just to walk with them wherever that they are in their journey. And, And that love is more about coming alongside than it is being further down the road and trying to pull them along with you. And so I think that was probably um, a connection we made, you know, whether that's accurate or not, is that we're reacting the way that we are because our theology and understanding of God really is is rooted too much in fear than it is in his love of us and the way that he's pursued us um, is more out of love than it is out of fear. So if we got that right about God, and, and really internalize that and believe that, I think we would be able to engage people who are at different places in their journey from a more loving posture than more than a fearful one. Darren, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, a piece of my history would be uh, secondary separation was a major uh, doctrine in the faith tradition that I would, kind of grew up in and was trained in. And secondary separation just doesn't leave much room for uh active love you can say you love them but you can't actually be near them because then you're not separated from them or because they know somebody that you have to be separated from that person or or peace and so i think for me trying to rewire some of that is am i is the love for myself or is the love for other people if the love is for myself and for me to be good before god based on this understanding then i have to I can't say be mean to people, but but there's a distance that I have to place between me and them because I'm trying to protect this relationship with God through, I would dare say, a false understanding. But when you can get beyond that and say, wait a minute, it's all about loving the people around me, then I begin to ask questions. I'm willing to open myself up. But there's just, for, for my, from, from my faith tradition, there was some some big leaps there to is it okay to even have that conver- conversation? Is it, am I um, unfaithful by even reading that book? Have I even acknowledged that that exists as a reality, that that's actually a, a real uh, faith tradition? Because some of my background have me to say that there's only one real faith tradition and the, the, all the others are apostasy. Um, so that, that takes some rewiring and, to move from only loving my relationship with God to loving the greater body in a, in a way. And my love mm-hmm. for the greater body does not mean that they have to come onto my pathway, but that I love them on their pathway. And I think even, but even then it can get tricky when we can use the word love, but we're really just loving with agenda. So it's like, yeah, I may be um, having a conversation with you, but it's, so that you will end up thinking like me by the end of this conversation or by the, you know, that's the point of the relationship. And I think what the posture piece really is, is if you're actually loving somebody, you are seeing them as an equal and maybe even 
below them to say, I, I'm an expert on my experience, but I'm going to trust that you're an expert on your experience. So what do I have to learn from you that I can't possibly know from my corner of the world where, you know, where I live, where I grew up, what I've experienced as a woman, white woman in the United States of America. Like I want to know what you're bringing to the table. Um, so I think it is, it's, it's about positioning ourselves, not just as loving so that somebody can arrive somewhere. It's loving in the immediate for no other reason that they're, they're a human being that we can learn from mm-hmm. and that they represent as a human being, they represent an image of God that we haven't encountered before. So yeah. what could we possibly learn from them that we would never know otherwise? Yeah. Yeah. And Darren, what's secondary separation? Oh, wow. So secondary separation, at least the way my, I understand it and was, was taught it is if you so let's see. All right. So if Caleb, all right. So mm-hmm. first degree separation would be Caleb, you're you're a bad person. So I need to be separate myself from you. All right. That's first degree <laughs> separation. Secondary separation is if Caleb knows or is friends with somebody who is a bad. So you're a good person, but they're a bad person. I have to separate myself from you because you have not separated yourself from them. <laughs> You end up very lonely very quick. (laughs) I, yes, yes, I could see how. Thank you for the, yeah, thank you for saying that. I, um, you know, obviously didn't know what that was. Well, that's Um, good. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You're in a healthier place, probably. (laughs) Uh, Well, we, I mean, we all, we all have our stuff. It's just different. Right. Right. Um, Okay, Darren, I, I want to follow up with you and ask you about the social science piece of this that you were mentioning. And you were mentioning um, about how there's, uh, I think, steps or things like that that are involved in the conversion process, but also in the deconversion process. Uh, people, would you mind just elaborating a little bit more on that? Yeah, so one of the big studies that we bumped into, I'll refer to it as, as Heinz, H-E-I-N-Z, but it started uh, about 20 years ago, and it was a major uh, project between Germany and the U.S. and a number of uh, universities, and they wanted to understand deconversion. Basically, just why do people move from one faith tradition to another, and, and where, where do they go? Because there was assumptions, but they, they wanted to understand that. So it went on um, for a long time, about 10 years, then they did a follow-up and longitudinal follow-up with all the same individuals. And they had populations in the U.S., they had populations in Germany, they compared the results and all of these pieces. And so just on the one piece that was so striking was that this uh, research has been going on way before this pop culture deconversion type, you know, thing that's being talked about now. Obviously, people had been looking and saying, how does somebody enter into a group and how do they convert in and convert out? And they were very purposeful in this, saying that we're going to use the word um, deconversion, because if you can convert in, you can convert out. And there was no uh, attachment to it of good or bad. It was just a factual nature. And so then they began to find all of the different directions that people would go. Uh, from that. And we just found a massive amount of research there that I guess reinforced what we were already thinking, but also gave us a framework 
of like, hey, here's these common triggers that are come that we can identify out of the social sciences of why somebody begins to question things. Here's this crisis, this existential crisis. Here's their questioning of things. And then if it's not resolved, they make a migration and they move from one group to another group. And in the research, they identify these six different uh, moves and the worst graphics in the world. I mean, it's <laughs> like, oh my gosh, a bunch of ed- eggheads across different continents came up with this thing. And it's like, this thing is not, it's just, it hurts your brain to look at it. But when you can finally peel it back, you're like, oh my gosh, they they mapped out so many answers, very detailed answers for these quick knee-jerk reactions. And so when somebody says, well, everybody's, it's like, I want to like, oh no, have you read the few thousand pages of Heinz um, and Straub and understand that actually there's probably six different ones and they're moving this or they're moving that and and that type of thing. So it was just some super fascinating uh, research um, on all that. And I think that what you've brought up there, Darren, that the deconvert or converting in and de- and deconverting out, I think at the root of all that that we're finding in deconstruction, um, and and maybe the maybe the root of the fundamentalist too is you're wanting the belonging, right? So you're holding on to this position because it's allowing you to belong to a certain group, and whether that's completely deconverting or holding really tightly to the traditional, you know, beliefs or whatever that you've held on to. And so there's something that's really scary about the deconstruction movement as an individual, but also to churches because it's saying you're leaving the group. And so what do, and and, and you're going to be tempted to want to align yourself with a different group because there's safety in that and that belonging in that group. And so I think what, you know, what's going to tend to land you on one side of that spectrum or the other is the desire to belong more than it is to have an authentic kind of learning processing experience. And a lot of times if the belonging is driving that, I think we're going to end up making concessions in our posturing um, just for the sake of belonging. So we've got to be able to allow, I think, people to experience the deconstruction, walk through, ask these questions without belonging, being at risk and part of our communities. It makes me think of like one of the one of the things I've started thinking about recently is like especially in in the especially in faith there's some things that are more important than the answers and in this case it's belonging and so I, I would just be curious and I and I, I'm going to ask this question fully knowing that there is not you know there is not a, a concrete answer to this okay um, but how much do you think an answer does matter versus because to some to some degree it does we could say it's 10 it matters 10% or it matters 5% or 20% or anything like that um, and maybe it's maybe it's just the learning process that you were talking about Sarah but i would just be curious to hear like just how much how much does an answer matter and i know i'm i'm, I'm adding all the caveats too cuz it's like well it depends on the question and the, you know how how personal is the question all that stuff but um yeah i i would just be curious to hear your thoughts on that and give me just a Sarah, maybe touch more context. How much does what type of an answer matter? Well, I guess I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out because if if I'm assuming that that at the heart of deconstruction is I'm encountering something that is making me question or evaluate or think more critically, um, then that that creates an uncertainty yeah. in me. 
like a, almost like a question mark or something like that. But if I'm hearing you correctly, that what can make the question mark smaller or what can make the question seem less, I don't know if less important is the right word, um, is belonging, is community, is love. And so with that, I'm just curious. And again, like I said, I know that there there isn't an answer. I'm just more you know curious to, to go down the intellectual yeah. exercise and everything. Yeah is um, how, much do we, how much do answers matter with it? Because they do, but it's just how much. So this, is, this might be a little bit of a wandering answer to your question. That's a, it was a wandering okay. question. So uh, <laughs> my wife and I are in the middle of a, a little bit of, well, it's kind of a big remodel because the whole house is a mess. Uh, a remodel, exterior remodel, and add in a garage. And I... I uh, kind of functioning as the general contractor so and then i was going to frame a few things um and hiring a bunch of it out and what i'm learning is i can hold on to my knowledge base on framing and i'll never get past the inspection or (laughs) i can embrace that the teams that i've hired to come alongside me have experiences that i've never had and understand the county I'm in and what their requirements are and that things have changed over 20 years since the last time I built a garage and that I've not fully understood. And there's just this, so it's not that an answer matters, it's that knowledge needs to continue to grow. So if you ask me, do I know how to frame a garage? I do know how to frame a garage, but it won't ever pass code. So I need and not that that so I need the, those around who have more recent and more experience, and those who have understood this code book, which I try to read. And I'm expecting it to tell me, you know, put a jack stud here and a king stud here, and it doesn't. It gives you a set of principles and calculations, and it's actually more complex, and it raises more questions for me, and it sends me down more rabbit trails for more span tables. And based upon, and I've got to understand the difference between spruce and pine. And I don't want to understand the difference between (laughs) yellow spruce and northern pine and old growth. And so I can hang on to this idea of I know how to frame a garage. Or I can embrace and but I need help. I need so much help along the way. So I think the long squirrely answer there, but to some degree is. I think we're always going to have an answer is, are we open to editing our answer? Are we open to our answers getting better? Are we open to more fully understanding our answers so that they apply in different ways? Because I'm a hack of a framer in a county that doesn't have an inspection. <laughs> but I can't pull it off in, a, in 2023 in a county with good inspections. and be able to do it. And so I have got to be able to expand my answer. So it's not that I don't have an answer. It's not that I come to the conclusion, there are no answers to framing. I just have to embrace that I need numerous people to help me understand it. And I need to pieces. So I don't know if that was rambling, but I think my my core piece is, I don't think it's a point that anybody's saying there are no answers. I think it's that the answers are continually growing and getting better and getting edited and false narratives or pieces that aren't applicable to a longer game are being taken out of it and becomes a better answer. 
I to kind of build oh, on that no. metaphor <laughs> as well. I think I would say too that there's something about an answer that's being told to you, and there's something about an answer being learned and discovered yourself. And I think a lot of times our model for church has been very much, I'm going, you ask a question, I'm going to give you the answer. How much are we trusting people to experience and discover things on their own? So when I think about the idea of answers in general, I mean, Jesus was asked hundreds of questions in the New Testament and maybe only answered, I mean, I've, I've written something on this before and I can't remember the exact numbers, but maybe answered a dozen questions completely. So there is there is something to not being told an answer, but the the answer itself being the discovery of it, right? That the process in and of itself is teaching us something. And that what Jesus did actually answer was what's the greatest commandment? Mm-hmm. I'll give you that one. That one's to actually love. So how that plays out is going to look very differently. But I think there's something very interesting about the fact that the one question he does nail down in all the gospels is like, what's the most important thing? Everything else feels kind of extra, right? So like, how's that going to play out? I mean, I don't like how, what does baptism look like? I don't know. What is, you know, does liturgy matter more than this other kind of worship? I don't know. I'm not sure that it matters. A lot of that feels like, what's your process for getting to that particular answer? What are you learning about what God is like and who you are and the people around you as you get to that particular answer? So I think making it more about not just the destination of the answer itself, but the journey and how you're arriving there and how, what's your objective in asking the question or wanting to arrive in the answer in the first place? Is it so you can stop thinking and so you can say like, okay, I got that figured out. Or is it so you can then have another question and another process to begin to continue to unpack? Mm -hmm. That even makes me think of like what we were talking about earlier um, with with the people who are part of the deconstruction process. We most value the people who are willing to walk with us on the journey, not the ones who are trying to drag us to a particular destination also. Um, Darren, one other thing I want to follow up that you mentioned earlier is Fowler's stages of faith as well. And so anything that stood out to, you know, you or Sarah, you too, about Fowler's stages of faith? Uh, I guess I'd, I mean, once again, this is where I kind of get upset as going through Bible college, some little bit of seminary is like, man, I, I don't believe, remember, maybe I was there and I wasn't paying attention, but I don't remember being introduced to a whole, whole sets of things. So that was maybe my faith tradition didn't acknowledge some of those pieces, but there's just, there's just great models that help us to understand and explain how people move, what's natural maturation that, and what, what level of, um, I guess spirituality should be uh, expected that aligns with their their human maturity and brain development and all of these different pieces. And then Fowler's is fifty uh, some years old. I think it's 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 it was some early work. And then there's some much more updated models where they've continued to say, "Hey, that we've learned new things. All right, so now let's adjust that that it's not so distinctly tied to a." year of life but to a little bit more of developmental um and all those pieces so there's just a a number of the the more you dig the more you start learning and like wow i think there's a void at least there has been a void in uh the instruction that i had to understand those pieces because they would provide us some pieces and then sarah you uh, bring up the 
it's not the cycles, the circle, what's the, I'm blanking out, the spiral dynamics. Yeah. Oh, spiral dynamics. Mm -hmm. Yes, similarly. I, I mean, I think I don't have Fowler's, I have the book somewhere, but I don't have it in front of me. But I think it's, and I, and I think spiral dynamics is kind of similar, a parallel in some way that you start in a very concrete, very black and white, um, no abstract, very literal understanding of faith. And this is obviously like baby to toddler, mm -hmm. you know, kind of age, preschool. And then you're getting to this stage where there is, I mean, for spiral dynamics, it really is like this kind of, it's the collective human belonging. It's very abstract, but it's, it's a more of an understanding of oneness than it is separateness from one another. And um, Fowler's more abstract faith, more, it, there is more curiosity. There's allowance for doubt, for question asking, for reevaluation of the beliefs that you were given. Um, what do you want to hold on to? What do you want to let go of? Um, and I think the thing that we kind of discover is that so many churches are operating with kind of a cap on the literal Fowler stages of belief of being or in group out group of like no we're the good everybody out there is not and as you're starting to develop and mature other ways relationally emotionally and other things there's been a cap on the spiritual development and that if you're starting to think beyond that then you're no longer part of the group so it, it just has been really interesting to see that, oh gosh, what if these questions aren't bad, but actually the natural process of faith development. And if we were not going there, we're actually hurting ourselves faith-wise. So it just kind of totally flipped the script mm -hmm. for us and what we were discovering on some of that. Okay. Another thing I wanted to ask about is going back to, um, sometimes there's confusion around deconstruction and that being deconversion as well. What are some of the other areas of confusion that you just discovered just in your research of deconstruction of what people may not be clear about or they're confused about such as um you know viewing deconstruction as deconversion and that they're two very different things in that and sarah maybe we could start with you and then darren anything that you found uh you can share i think just going back to what we were just talking about that there is a there's been an emphasis on deconstruction when it comes to teenagers but what we found is that yes that may be true for some of them but for a lot of them they're just going through a natural um, psychological physiological development process where they're asking questions and individuating from their parents or from the generation before them and that's not necessarily deconstruction as much as it is just mental development and so um just removing the fear from that piece, like if your teenager is asking questions, like this is not the time to panic, that that's, it's actually really good. We're, we're wanting to see them to kind of move to that next stage of development. So I think that was the, the biggest piece for me was seeing that this word is being used as a catch-all for some really different experiences. And, and for teenagers, especially, um, we're going to do a really big disservice if we use that word and attach it to fear of them walking away instead of an encouragement of, oh, this is how you become an individualized human with an individual and personal faith that actually develops resilience in your faith because it's built on something now and not just on what was given to you. So just for me, that was a really big difference in, in seeing that word associated with um, a particular age demographic, but that not necessarily representing what they were experiencing. How about you, Darren? Yeah, one of the, the one of the thoughts that during the whole process is I began to hear the phrase coming from di different number of different places. Like it's important that we hand a faith to the next generation, and you know, and and, and I've been hearing that phrase for a decade or more, and like nodding along. 
But then once into all of this research and things, be, I began to take issue with the idea that we are supposed to hand it to the next generation. It just has a little bit of that posture again, is that I have a posture that I have the correct version of all of this. And it is my, my job to convince them to take it as I have it, rather than maybe saying it is my job to help them develop a faith or to find their faith. And so one on the, the deconstruction, if it's once if it's if it's centered on if if all of our measurements and our definitions of deconstruction is did they follow the path that I crafted? If did they follow whatever me and my cohort created, then if they're not inside those lines, then they deconstructed or they're just sinning or whatever, whatever we want to call it. But that centers me in the argument. Or I can say it is my role to try to help them to go on that journey of finding their faith. And it just changes a whole lot there of my posture, my position, my interactions, how I receive their questions. Um, if they ask a really tough question, that should empower me and be excited. Like, I am so glad that you could come up with that question. I have never had that question. And that doesn't mean that they're out of bounds. It probably means that I flatlined and that I haven't developed or that I've just kind of taken a status quo. So that, that would be be one of this a whole idea of handing it off as opposed to helping. And I, I think we just use that phrase sloppily sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I know there's nothing, you know, uh, you know, bad ideas about it. It's just the way it yeah. lives itself out, I think, kind of messes. The other one is deconversion having a singular ending point, which I think we already mentioned, is that if somebody deconverts, therefore they no longer love God, care about God, or any of that. And that's just so, so far from the truth. It's it's absolutely upside down. Nobody chooses uh, to do deconstruction. It is not a hobby. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a thing we found. It is a response to crisis. It is, it is not a hobby that somebody has chosen to do. Um, it's response to a crisis. And the crisis is because they typically, they love God. They love Jesus. They mm -hmm. love God. They love how he's revealed himself through the scriptures. And they're now in a crisis because there's something occurring around their life that has called this, causing this existential crisis that triggered something. And they're trying to maintain their their love and their commitment to God, but they can't understand it in this realm. And so understanding that they have the pure, most of the time, have purest of motives. They're seeking to do everything that you want them to do. Um, and most of them land still by far majority, still love God, still love Jesus. They may not ever enter your expression of that or your doors or your ministry or your program or anything. They may not check your box of denomination, but they still love Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something else, Darren. You said something that um, it was. We found the exact opposite of what I think people were saying that people were that people were leaving their faith because they weren't taking right. it seriously enough. Mm -hmm. And we found that people who struggled with deconstruction the most were the ones who took their faith extra seriously and it was that much more of an existential crisis because the constructs they had used to 
define the narrative of their lives was no longer working. And it wasn't upending this faith box. It was upending their entire world. Mm -hmm. And so that was super eye-opening that the the narrative was completely backwards, that it wasn't people who just wanted to find an excuse to go, you know, party, behave the way that they wanted to behave. It was people who were saying, I am in crisis. I built my whole world around this idea of belief and now it's not working for me anymore and i don't know what to do so i think that was that was super surprising and um really heartbreaking in a lot of ways there are people it was it was shocking to me to see how it was treated by people you know church leaders people in authority people with a louder bigger platforms louder megaphones and and then to read tweets experiences books whatever, from people who are going through it and being like, I am terrified. I've never felt more alone. I don't know where to go, what to do. Like it, the, the dissonance was, was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Darren, I want to go back to um, what you mentioned. I would love to maybe just tease it out a little bit more. You know, you mentioned the handoff versus the development of faith. Tease out a little bit about like what that, what that development can look like. Uh, so I, I mean, once again, this also goes back into some learning learning theory, and I won't even remember all the different yeah. categories from ed classes, but you can either teach individuals to repeat back to so your lowest levels, you know, basically memorize and repeat it back, or you can teach them to process and understand, and they're going to come to their own answers based upon a set of pieces there. So, I mean, if we're just teaching truth or how to please God. And this is the, this is the nine key things, 10 key things, or the four, you know, paths to stay on or to avoid these three things that is going to become problematic when those don't line up with reality or their experience or the way that we, um, uh, illustrated them, which I think is a big part of it too. I think a whole lot of where we at is we have really good meaning, but the way we illustrated it and the way we used it as a, uh, the marker or measured it is maybe broken. Um, so, I mean, missions work, there's, has all the purest of intentions and everything and caring for others, but we can look at some, some of the ways that I have been involved in missions work in my experience was not helpful and probably caused more harm than it did good and all sorts of different things. Well, it doesn't mean we have to throw it all out, but we do need to help them to to conclude and come to a, a better point point. So mm-hmm. we can say, this is the way that you develop a love for others. Join me on this trip. This is it. This is the pathway for learning how to be a others loving person. And if they didn't sign up for the trip that I created, I conclude that they don't love others, even though on the side, they may be doing things that demonstrates love for others, but it doesn't fit my world. So I discount it or I actually see it as a threat or they didn't show up for my experience because they were doing this other experience. So that's where I'm so locked in on telling them how to do it that I've totally missed the point that they are actually going and being the hands and feet of Jesus to a group of friends or individuals, but it doesn't fit my my structure or my program or piece. Mm-hmm. Um, leaving room for questions and doubts. It's 
it's uh it's way easier when you're leading a group to have all of the group leaders toe the party line it's much harder to lead a group if you've got very strong personalities who are asking really tough questions and i have I have the decision as a leader, am I going to allow those questions or am I going to gather them up in a training and remind them that this is the script that we're all working from? Um, and mm -hmm. say, hey, if you're going to be this leader, you need to you need to do it this way. Um, so I don't know. Now, those are a couple thoughts off the top of the head. Yeah. Any thoughts, Sarah? Oh, yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I know, I know there are several things that we mentioned in it. What's a Sarah? What surprised you the most in your research? I think I I think what's dis, what surprised me, because um, I feel like along my own deconstruction, kind of if you want to call it that journey, I've um, been pursuing my masters and and have had a lot of. Um, professors and just learning from a lot of different people who are from a completely different expression of Christianity, a lot of Eastern Orthodox um, teachers. And um, I think I've just been surprised at how many beautiful ways there are to follow Jesus mm -hmm. in that when we use, when we have so much fear around deconstruction, it's usually fear around a very specific way of following Jesus. And we're afraid of of losing people to that one way and that actually there's a much broader um, path to faith than maybe I ever realized and just learning from that um, and, and changing um, for me personally, changing that the posture of, because I think I went into my own deconstruction process afraid of where is this going to go? What kind of things am I going to discover? And instead being surprised at how freeing um, the process can be and eye-opening in the best way possible. Um, so I think it surprised me that there is a lot of freedom on the other side and freedom in the different ways that practicing faith can, can show up and how many more teach as a result, how many more teachers there are in the world than maybe I once thought. Yeah. Darren, what was most surprising to you? Uh, I think for myself, it would be how much of a follower I am as a leader. So I've been a leader in Christian ministry spaces for, I don't know, a few decades now. And as I'm looking back, I'm realizing how much I was just stayed in the current of the specific vein that I was in. And that you never have enough time to actually pause and think about it. So I made moves inside that current stream, maybe a little bit here, move to the right here, move to the left here, but I still stayed in the current because I didn't even question or look or ask, am I even on the right river? Um, is this river taking me where I even want to go? Or is there a fork in this river that I need to move over here or there? So I... And to say that I'm that much of a follower just rips my guts out because I like to think of myself as a leader. But when I look back and I'm like, oh, I never did question that core whole approach. I got on that train in that stream and I just stayed in it. And I asked questions in the stream, but I never asked if I should, should have gotten off that stream. And there was a real moment 
a whole bunch of friends that I had interacted with for a bunch of years and we were in a group conversation and something came up, uh, I think about, maybe it was about inerrancy or this or that. And I gave an, an answer or the answers came up and I looked around the room and I realized I'm the freak. I'm the radical outside <laughs> edge freak. And I'm like, seriously, none of you look at the world the same way that I look at the world. And it was that like, oh my goodness. And what was so powerful about that is that I had, I'd known this group for a lot of years and interacted with them. So I didn't have any questions. I couldn't question their integrity, their love, their heartbeat, any of those kind of things. But for whatever reason, we suddenly began to talk about these specific things. And suddenly I'm like, wow, I'm, I'm on the extreme little edge corner out here. And it really helped me to ask some better questions because to be honest, I was, I've been, I'd been instructed and trained to fear all of those types of people. And so now I'm like, Oh, I had no idea. You don't see it that way, but you love, you love people, God and others and the scriptures more than I do. And so that was the, I mean, that was a kind of a Eureka big surprise moment for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you're just, you're, uh, memories are flashing for me right now. It's it's such an interesting experience when people look at you like that and you go, I know a lot more extreme people than myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've talked a lot about um, belonging. I'd be curious to hear, is there anything else that you discovered in like the, the deconstruction or the faith rebuilding process um, that was incredibly helpful in addition to belonging? I don't, we haven't talked a whole lot about the things we found that kind of triggered the deconstruction yeah. process. And I think um, what was helpful for me was coming up with these categories of what everything kind of fit into these four kind of categories and what, even though this was a, and I think it helped us determine why this was such a big thing happening right now, mm -hmm. that this maybe deconstructions happened repeatedly in throughout church history, but there is definitely an uptick right now. So what were the, what was causing that? And so I think, um, you know, the four categories that we kind of landed on were, um, our understand or, you know, faith development, what we talked about before, this is not actually deconstruction. This is just kind of natural process growth. Yep. Um, we had the way that you understood and experienced God. Um, so we would put in this kind of category, something, you know, you experience a tragedy and you're left asking, wait, I thought God was good. How could he allow this to happen? These kinds of bigger questions of what do you think God is actually like that kind of shape the way that you understand the world. And a lot of people either having a stronger faith or leaving faith completely as a result of that. But the two that were really in tune with like the cultural moment that we were, we found were, um, people's experience in church and their personal worldview as it related to politics and culture mm -hmm. and which made a lot of sense, right? What we've seen in the past several years with church, um, whether it's been abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse, clergy abuse, you know, all these different things that have kind of come to the surface and people saying this, the church I thought I was a part of is not the church I've experienced or the church that's now coming to light. And so it was creating a lot of questions around that. And then obviously politically, a lot of people brought up um, the relationship that they saw between politics and faith and the, and the marriage of um, 
certain politicians with certain faith uh, church expressions and feeling really disillusioned and what that looked like in the in different faiths response to racism, to sexism, to LGBTQ. Um, so you can see how these were more cultural moments, but th why that led to an explosion of deconstruction in this current moment. So there are ones that are going to kind of show up consistently throughout history and throughout, you know, in the future when it comes to how you understand faith development and what God's character is like and how that how you understand the problem of evil suffering, all of that. But the two categories that really um, were honed in a lot, um, it just, to me, it, it, it made me think if we are going to continue to have relevance in the life of the next generation or the current generations, whoever they are, um, these are bigger questions that we need to be looking at. This isn't, these aren't just theological questions. These are, what is, what, what is our relationship with culture? What's our relationship in politics? What's our relationship um, in the worldviews that we're developing and the way that we're responding to cultural crisis is going to affect um, how people hold on to their faith. Mm -hmm. Darren, any other additional thoughts on that? Yeah, I think in, uh, kind of on the surprising or things that kind of revealed themselves was the 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 unaffiliated um this whole category of uh right now the words that i'd always been hearing is the unchurched um which has an assumption that they just haven't yet made it into a church but if if you could convince them to turn off the tv or to you know step away from the park and make it into the church, then all would be fine. They just are a blank slate that they just need to be church. And as soon as they experience it, it all changed. Or the non-religious, those who just don't have want anything to do with religion. And this whole unaffiliated category is somewhere in the middle of all of those, where there's such a large and the nuns and unaffiliated and so, you know teasing all of that out but the unaffiliated is the phrase i think i become most comfortable with this grouping of people who once again they love god but they're not going to they're not okay with the current structures denominations um conferences or whatever and they're just lost they're they're in between things they want to they want their kids to understand and to know God. They want to know God. They want to grow. But they can't find a physical expression, um, programmatic physical expression that they feel safe, comfortable, or able to grow in. And so this, this unaffiliated group is something that I think that we're looking at a whole lot of, of what it looks like. But it's not the unchurched. And there's, I think, where we continue to make some mistakes there, assuming that they're unchurched or assuming that they're mad at God. And there's there's just a whole different layer there that needs to be more fully understood of how do we embrace, uh, support, resource, come alongside, um, build relationship alongside um, those that are, I think, are the unaffiliated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Darren, you came up with the phrase, instead of saying unchurched, they were dechurched. They started in church, but they don't, they're not there anymore. Mm -hmm. And, and that for a church leader should change our posturing, right? It's not, they don't need to be convinced of anything. They need to be won back. Mm -hmm. And so that, that changes our posture of church leaders of like, 
have we done something that's caused you to lose trust in us? That's caused you to think that this isn't the place for us or for you. And then what can we do to, to fix that as opposed to just come be a part with us. And once you experience us, you'll never want to leave. Mm-hmm. Well, i got a couple other questions that I want to ask, but is there anything in, in regards to the research that we haven't talked about, haven't covered that you want to make sure uh, that we talk about or cover? Uh, the thing I'd say is uh, when it co- talks about migrations or exits, or if they have an existential crisis, what the ones, the four that we landed on, and I, just because we've kind of danced around it, but I'll just say them here just to be helpful, is that we, we kind of summarized a few from the Heinz Stribe research and others and pulled them together just to make it simpler. And so there's four uh, secular. So there there is no religious you know, peace there. There are some that do a secular migration, move from where they are to this. The other would be a non-conforming to Christianity. They still are very religious or spiritual, but it not, might not fit inside of the box that we would refer to as Christianity. Um, then there's the move towards the unaffiliated. So they are seeking God inside what we'd probably refer to as the Christian faith, but they're just not doing it alongside the current denominations and structures that maybe that we're looking at. And then the the fourth one is just swapping. They just moved from one uh, expression of faith. Basically, they went from one church to a different church down the street. And that goes both ways. Sometimes it's a more um, conservative move. They feel like they're losing their ways. They move more conservative. And sometimes it's like, wow, I feel like you're too, you're missing the boat and you're not relevant. And they move to a more progressive. But that explains, we feel like that explains most of the migrations that are happening. And most of that, and I think we like the word migration because that's really a positive word. Um, And also the research shows that almost nobody stays in the same denomination or the same faith experience their whole life. Um, they almost all have moved a few times. And so once again, it takes the pressure off and some of the fear away and like, Hey, we won't, we're okay that people are migrating and, and growing and changing and moving. So that I think having a framework that people in their journey of pursuing God are going to move and migrate between things. And migration is a positive uh, term as opposed to saying that they are exiting or, uh, you know, deconverting or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one, one of the questions probably in the last, uh, few months that I've been introduced to that I like to, uh, ask from time to time is this idea of what's an idea that needs to yeah. die. And so I'd love to hear in regards to, uh, what we've been talking about in regards to uh, faith rebuilding, you know, deconstruction, all of that stuff. What is an idea that needs to die? Or what's an idea that we just need removed from, you know, the Christian vocabulary or, or something like that? And Darren, maybe we can uh, get started with you and then Sarah can, you know, give hers. Um, all right. Thought about that one. You gave me a little heads up on that one. And I'll try to, I'll try to, <laughs> it, it fits and it, it, it it isn't like part of this uh, mental model and this, you know, there are scribbles, but it just kept coming up as we talked about this, the idea of calling. I think mm-hmm. our current understanding of this idea of calling needs to die. And here's why is 
right now we have i'll give you my perception of it so this is just a flawed darren's perception of it uh through my experiences is that there's this idea of calling that often happens around a campfire at age 13 after no sleep and red bulls and more candy and they're off their normal diet and this and that and the guitars that have been going forever and all sorts of things and there's this moment that this individual has a calling and then that is reinforced by the leaders around them and they are now elevated above their peers because they have this idea of a calling when they have a question or a doubt they are reminded they do not have a question or a doubt because they open the front cover of their Bible, at least that's old school, and show them where they wrote and it was signed and witnessed by others that they had this calling from God to do a something, to do a thing. And it there's some real health in that, and I think there's some real negative in that. And so where that goes in this deconstruction stuff is if I'm hanging on to this calling, this thing that's been reinforced that may not be as tangible and true as we have built it up to be, then I have, to, I have to hang on to something because now my calling, I can't fail. I can't move to a different type of ministry. I can't ask that tough question. I can't come to a different conclusion about the truth because I would have to give up my calling. Or if I concluded that and told everybody around me that I actually believe that, they would remove me from my position. And so now my income and my profession and my status and all of these things get woven back in this odd way, back to this thing that we call calling that is, I think, too powerful, not fully understood and taken advantage of. There. <laughs> That's good. Oh, yeah. Um. I'm just going to go back to kind of what we've reiterated through this whole thing is just the idea of certainty. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I have observed and heard too many times when people have asked questions about something that is in the Bible or about God and the idea from um, Genesis three being repeated back that Satan goes, did God really say? And then, so the idea of questions being associated with what Satan oh, did yeah. in the garden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and using that as a, um, tool to stifle thinking and creative thinking and question asking and, um, putting a, a cap on people who are legitimately just trying to find things out for themselves. So, um, I think the idea of certainty on a lot of things needs to die. And I think kind of along those same lines, um, the idea of mistrusting your experience and, um, slash emotions on some things, um, needs to go away as well. I think that's been part of, um, again, the, the intellectualizing of faith, I think has caused us to really doubt, um, what our bodies tell us, what our emotions tell us. And, um, 
And I think there's also been kind of an, an abuse of, of discounting individual experience of things and, and saying that can't be true because it just happened to me or, you know, whatever. So I think there just needs to be a little bit of a flip when it comes to certainty, when it comes to um, paying attention to our own experience, but also the experiences of others and just knowing that, um, that there's a lot to be learned from people's experiences and paying attention to our own and not just being skeptical of every experience or every emotion we have just because they're an emotion or they're personal. So um, just kind of leaning into that. Again, I think it goes back to the fear piece. If we're being led by our fear, then question asking is terrifying. Then our emotions are scary and our experiences can't be trusted. But if we're coming from a place of love, then um, we can ask those questions and we know that there's something better on the other side of them. We don't have to resist them. So just kind of making a switch there for me. Well, and I, I want to ask the inverse of it. And, it, and your answer might just be the inverse of what you said, but what's something that, what's an idea that needs more life, that needs more uh, promotion, that needs more uh, more of the spotlight? And Sarah, maybe we can start with you and then Darren, you can you can go. Yeah, I, I would say it is the inverse for me. It's mystery. It's really learning to lean into the not knowing about things and um, finding that there's a lot of life in the not knowing and that, um, and, and moving from being answer based or certainty based or, um, destination based and instead saying, there's a lot that I get to learn, um, from just the journey, from just asking the questions and that there's, um, the process of becoming, matters just as much as who I end up becoming. And so really leaning into the the mystery of, of what God is like, um, who, what's shaping me, what my faith experience is, what's working faith-wise, you know, spiritual practice-wise for me right now may not be the thing that I end up leaning into five years from now, but, but just knowing that I don't have to quote unquote land anywhere. And we don't need to necessarily be encouraging anybody to land anywhere as much as what is authentic growth becoming look like right now, right here, and not this final destination that we keep in mind. Mm-hmm. How about you, Darren? I was in a conversation a few few weeks ago and just trying to, I don't know, innovation and thinking about, I think one of the things that hit me then that I think fits here is, I think there's a value to leadership and structure changing often which goes against some things that I've had in previous understandings. Um, but, but, but that somehow it, it's not, it's not locked in. It just doesn't become a system that then controls you. So I don't know what all that, all the ways that that takes shape, but mm-hmm. somehow it's, it definitely doesn't have the same levels of memberships and, and, 15 year plans and, and you are locked in and we have this thing that we have to stay this course and we have to stay this thought process for the next 15 years because we, we did this plan. So somehow, obviously it'd be, you know, um, more organic, more, more change-based. Some of the other uh, individuals in the conversation we're talking about rotation of leadership is that there is purposeful and that it doesn't, doesn't lock on that. Um, I think lay ministry, I think at some level has in modernity has been pushed down as a, well, if you're really good, you'll get out of 
um, layer or a tent maker and you'll get into the big game. And maybe that should be elevated more than being in the big game and, and be saying, man, we love the fact that your whole world is not dependent upon you having to not change your mind that you are living in a world. And if you have a conclusion and growth, you can change your mind and migrate in a new way. And it doesn't cause trauma and, and things. So some, some things around there of uh, yeah. migration and growth is actually baked in and wired in. And we ask the question, how come you're still here? Because if you've been growing, <laughs> we would have thought that maybe you would have been grow, grew beyond us or, not even beyond grew towards something else that a different passion would have begun as opposed to celebrating your, you've been in the same spot, the same seat pew or parking spot for 50 years. Maybe that shouldn't be celebrated. Maybe we should be asking the question, how come you're still here in the same spot? Is, has God not, you know, teed yeah. you up for something different? I don't know. Ideas. Yeah. Good. The the last thing I want to ask is, and I know that uh, so much of what we've talked about has already touched on this, but anything specific stand out um, to either one of you about what you learned about God or Jesus and the Holy Spirit about this or through this uh, deconstruction faith rebuilding uh, research? We could go back through some text messages um, and some conversations. I know, with, right? Uh, specifically my my my. Uh, the ones in my mind are with my kids where I'm sharing oh. some things with them saying, I think I'm meeting a much more loving God than I ever shared with you. And just a much more accepting, a much more loving, a much more fun. I don't, you know, not to use a pithy term, but I'm, and which I, I don't know, that's, that would be some of my conversations when we all are together yeah. and then it's like, Hey, I need to. And they all start to glaze over like, Oh boy, here comes one other one of these dad talking about how he's <laughs> thinking about things differently. But I think that would be the, the, someone's like, <laughs> God is just much more loving. And Sarah and other friends just introduced me to resources and, and uh, concepts. I'm like, Oh my goodness, this was never shown to me a God that has this uh, posture towards me. Um, I think I would just say how much more expansive God is than I thought. Um, you know, kind of back to what I was saying earlier that I've just been exposed to so many different Christian faith traditions of, and different ways that that's shown up, but even just ways of following Christ that would not necessarily fit into Christian terms. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of people out there following Christ and a lot of ways of, of following Christ that wouldn't label themselves Christian. And, um, I just keep, I, th I think that, um, the parable that has just taken on new life for me in kind of the deconstruction season, as I've ex learned more about the expansiveness of God is the parable of the great banquet and, mm -hmm. um, the, the master saying to the servants, um, there's still room for more, just keep making room for as many people. If you want to be here, there's room for you. Yeah. And so, and that's, there's no qualification for that. And so just seeing the expansiveness of God and just your desire alone gives you belonging. Hmm. So I, um, yeah, I just have found that 
there's just a lot of people who that belonging piece is huge. And if we just make more and more space for their, their iteration of faith and making a place for them to belong with that iteration, I think is really powerful. I know it has been for me. Well, that's great. Well, I know that people are going to want to keep up with the both of you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? <laughs> Neither one of us are super active on social media, are we? <laughs> We're not good at this. <laughs> uh. I, I'm on Instagram. Um, SB Anderson on Instagram is probably my best, most up to date be the best one. Yeah, and I'm yeah. Darren Kaiser at where wherever I am, but yeah, it's not a <laughs> not a world that I have uh have yeah. conquered. Um still trying to sort all that yes. out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well hey, I just want to say thank you both so much for such a great conversation and just thank you both for doing the work and choosing uh to share it with me and choosing to share it um just with everyone listening yeah. as well. Thank you for yeah, thank you for inviting us on and for all the great conversations even prior to this and, and all this. So thank you. Thanks for having me. So I think coming out of that conversation with Darren and Sarah, there's two things that really stand out to me. And the first, I guess the first one, and, and they're pretty tied together. And this is true. This is true for faith, but this is true for, for so many other things in life. And it's what is getting in the way of me learning or being open to a perspective that is different than mine. What's the What's the fear? What's the emotion that rises up in me whenever I encounter something that is unfamiliar or strange to me? And the other one is what is or what what am I doing to put myself into the position of being a learner and not being the expert? And thinking about what Darren said, especially towards the, the end of our conversation of does like where where do I need to remove myself from leadership? What do I need to do to enter spaces to where I'm not necessarily the leader, but I could be a learner and someone else could be the teacher and I could be the student. And yeah, and just and just thinking about that so much. And we've we've talked about this on the podcast before. But almost like, what is your intentional strategy for learning? And what is your intentional strategy for growth? And realizing that that requires being introduced to things that could sometimes make us uncomfortable from time to time. And are learning from people who are different than us, who, who may disagree with us. And that's absolutely what we want to do here in the, on the Learner's Corner. Is talk about topics that can be difficult to talk about with other people to talk about topics of people who have who have different viewpoints because we can learn from everyone and from everyone regardless of whether or not we agree with them 
And that's part of the reason why I do my Substack and send out all these recommendations for different great things that I'm learning about from fiction to nonfiction to books and movies and podcasts or quotes that are just making me think as well. And again, uh, if you want to subscribe that, just if you want to subscribe to that, check out the show notes for my Substack and you know, whenever there's great stuff that I'm, I'm recommending, I send it out. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. So I want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. And thank you to Sarah and uh, to Darren as well for being on the podcast and just for the great conversation. I think that's all that I have for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growling.